before we get started, I'd like to just bring us before uh, the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Lord, your glory fills the earth, and you've entrusted it to jars of clay. Lord, we thank you for your power and your mighty love. Lord, you are so intense, Lord, that we, we should not even be allowed to approach you, and so perfect and so sinless that you should not look upon us as your children. Lord, I pray um, that we will have ears to hear, Lord. And if there are those in this building today who do not know you, Lord, that today they will experience you in a completely new way. Amen. So we are going to be in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18. And before we get started with that, I'd like to be able to give us a little bit of an overview of why this book of 2 Corinthians was written and the context in which it was written. So Corinth was one of the major port cities in, northern Med- in the northern Mediterranean. Uh, it was really the only way for ships to get past the Mediterranean Sea without being uh, in the wind and in the mighty storms that is the northern Mediterranean. So they would dock in Corinth, and the Corinthians had actually dug this gigantic canal through um, Greece in order for ships to have a way to pass through. And it saved them generally three weeks of time. Um, Corinth was known for its prostitution, um, its temples to the sex god Aphrodite, and its constant influx of sailors and passengers who stopped in Corinth. Um, The best way I could compare Corinth in modern terms is if San Diego and Las Vegas had a Mediterranean baby, that's what they'd have. It would be Corinth. There was an old Roman expression, and it was to play the Corinthian. And what it meant was uh, you are a person who lives indulgently, you are a party person, and you don't really care about consequences. So if that gives you an idea of what this city is, um, yeah. Uh, Corinth was also one of the churches Paul established on his second missionary journey, and you could read that in Acts 18. Um, And once Paul left, this church struggled immensely with leaving that old Corinthian way and committing themselves fully to God. And Paul ended up writing a very harsh letter to them, um, encouraging them to turn from their sin and to move forward in Christ. Evidently, the Corinthians rejected this first letter, and Paul ended up coming in person. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls it the very sad visitation. Um, After this, the church repented and began to grow again. Um, And in response to their growth, Paul wrote our current book, 2 Corinthians, in the year AD 55, so about 25 years after the death of Jesus. Um, This letter is extremely personal between Paul and the Corinthian church, and it covers a huge amount of topics. Uh, But today we're going to focus on chapter 3 with a focus on our new life in Christ. And I think that this is important to remember. Though the Corinthian church struggled so immensely with sin, 
they are still called God's holy church. And God's glory dwells with them. So, as we, again, before we jump into our passage, I'm, I'm sure everyone is wondering what in the world that says up there. Um, so that is Koine Greek, and that is the language of the New Testament. Um, the New Testament is not written in English, if you didn't know that. Um, so I'm going to walk this through with you, and it's going to be important as we go through our passage. So that first word up there is hey. Hey is a definite article, which means it's modifying a noun. It's telling us something about that noun, and it's saying that this is a very specific thing. It's, yeah. Doxa is the next word, and that, in English, the easiest way to translate it is glory. Um, I think that is a horrendous translation of it, so we're going to walk through what glory means. But it, that first part is the glory, not a glory, not some glory, the glory. That next word is to, it is another definite article, but it's functioning differently. It's telling us that doxa or glory belongs to something. It's possessive. And that final word is what possesses glory, and that is God. So we're going to walk through this um, translation. If in English, we would translate it as the glory of God. But as I said, I think that's a poor translation of it. So we are going to jump into 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18 now. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit, the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. The old ways, with laws etched in stone, led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For, the, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. If the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds, so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ." Yet, even though today, when they read Moses' writing, their hearts are covered with the veil, and they don't understand. But, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and whenever the Spirit of the Lord is there, there is freedom. So all of us who have had their veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him, as we are changed into his glorious image. 
clearly in this passage, glory is a big deal. Um, This word glory or doxa appears 14 times in this passage alone. And in the rest of scripture, it appears over 167 times. This word is important. (laughs) Doxa, if you're going to translate it from the Greek, literally just means good opinion, honor, or praise. But in the New Testament, it is a way deeper, far more significant meaning. It is a divine quality, a manifestation of God and heaven and the splendor of God, a physical, not verbal image of God. But there's actually a far deeper meaning to the word doxa, and it's far more ancient and far more powerful. It is actually a Greek umbrella word. It's trying to do, it's trying to cover a Hebrew word and give it a Greek meaning so that non-Jews can understand this word. And that word, some of you may know it, is Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. This is an extremely important word. Um, So how often do you think this super important, super powerful word appears in the Old Testament? Any guesses? You can throw out any number. I don't care. 17. Four. Seven. Seven. 300. Any hires? What was that one? 33. 33. All right. The total number comes out to around zero times in all of Scripture. (laughs) Wait a minute. Yeah, it's zero. Um, So why in the world does this super important word come, why doesn't it appear in the Bible? For those who love languages, as I do, I adore them with a slight obsession Um, This word, be quiet, (laughs) this word comes from an Eastern Semitic Akkadian word, or really just the word from Babylon. It's It's a Babylonian word, and it means bright light or heavenly throne in Babylonian. Um, So what probably ended up happening during the Jewish exile to Babylon, they they saw the Babylonians using this word, so they adapted it to convey a Hebrew idea. And so during what is known as the intertestimonial period, that's that 400 years uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's probably when this word really started getting used uh, by the Jewish people. So why is this non-Hebrew word so important to the rest of Scripture? Uh, In order to answer that question, we need to know what Shekinah means. So I want you to think back to the Old Testament, and I want you to think back to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, we are introduced to the tabernacle. That's that big old tent thing that God's uh, lived in. And I want you to walk through that tabernacle. And as you walk further and further into the the tabernacle, you would come to this huge curtain. And behind that curtain is what's known as the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies. This was God's throne on earth. It's where heaven and earth met each other. The word Shekinah is used to fully encompass God's visible presence and especially his royal presence on his royal throne. This was a place in the temple where no one could enter except for one day, and that is Yom Kippur, that is the Jewish New Year. And even then, the high priest who went in there had to have a rope tied around him because if he died, they didn't want to go in there. They had to drag him out. God's 
glory, God's presence is incredibly intense. God's presence is so intense that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has that vision of God in the th- on his throne in the temple, and there's angels singing out, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who sits on the throne. He, uh, Isaiah uses the word, uh, I'm melting in the presence of God. It's the same word in the same way that um, uh, atomic bomb survivors use when against the atrocities that happened after that explosion. It's a very, very intense thing to be in the presence of God. It's deadly if for sinners. Shekinah is most known for its use in describing God's throne in the cloud and Mount Sinai. It is a scene of an indescribable power, beauty, fear, and security. And as our passage in 2 Corinthians points out, this Shekinah glory has an effect on people who are in it for a uh, amount of Man, English is going to be hard for me today. It has an effect on people. Let's go with that. So like a piece of steel, I love blacksmithing. And when you put a piece of steel in a fire and you take it out, there's a glow that remains, but that glow disappears with time and distance. It only really glows more if you put it back into the fire. So in the New Testament, the word doxa, is a way for non-Jews to hear and explain this super broad word, Shekinah. So now that we know what doxa is, let's dive back into our passage. So we're going to reread uh, 4 through 11. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not written in laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. The old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it had though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that the first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? So Paul is quoting the story found in Exodus 34 in this. When Moses, after dealing with that whole golden calf and after having destroyed the first copies of the Ten Commandments, he goes back up to Mount Sinai and receives the second copy of the commandments. So I'm going to read a little bit from that. I don't, I don't have time to read the whole thing, even though I really want to. Um, so let me go there. If you would like to go, you can go to Exodus 34, uh, 4 through 7. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone, like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his name, Yahweh. 
the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse guilt. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. I'm also going to read uh, verse 28 through 35. Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And in all that time, he ate no bread and drank no water. And the Lord wrote the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the stone tablets. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So then Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instruction the Lord gave him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with them. We can turn back to 2 Corinthians. So clearly, this is an event of immense power and of immense authority. But even though there's great authority and there's great power, there's unknownness, there's mystery, and there's still distance. This covenant never promised to be the end all for God's uh, redemptive story. Rather, it was a way for the people to realize their deep, deep need for God to save them. And as you go through the entirety of the biblical story, not one person is ever given eternal life because they've lived out the law. Not one. So no one ever attains eternal life in the whole of Scripture by living out the law. Each one dies in turn. And eventually, Moses' face stops glowing, and he also dies. God never intended the law to save his people, but rather to show their deep need for him to rescue them. So we're going to read on in 2 Corinthians. We're going to read 8 through 15. If I can find it. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that now that the Holy Spirit is giving life. If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. 
But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writing, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. And so as we discussed in Exodus, um, the law was never intended to save people, but rather it pointed forward to something new. It pointed to God fulfilling his promises. And after over 1,500 years, God fulfilled that promise. Jesus, born of a virgin, announced by angels, obeyed by nature, feared by demons, cared for by angels, healed the sick, raised the dead, was transfigured with Moses and Elijah, able to give his power to others, was without any sin whatsoever, fulfilled nearly 400 specific Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah or the coming king, was called the Son of God by numerous people, reached both Jew and non-Jew, called himself the Son of God, said he knew Abraham, who had been dead for nearly 2,000 years, and most importantly, was called the Son of God three times by the Father from heaven. Jesus was without a shadow of a doubt the promise God made to save humanity. But... Because of our sin, because of our hatred, our greed, our pride, our jealousy, our love of self, our love of money, our love of power, our love of control, and our love of comfort. We rejected, mocked, abused, insulted, bruised, and brutally killed the very author of life himself. Just like the first covenant, we failed. But God, God is not undeterred by man's failure. And as Jesus took his last breath, something very, very significant happened. In the temple, as an earthquake shook the ground underneath it, that curtain blocking the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, it tore in two. God's glory wasn't there anymore. It was going somewhere else. And three days later, everything changed. God's love is, God loved us so much that he came back for us. He conquered death, he conquered sin, and he conquered hell itself. Jesus rose from the grave and came to us again. He conquered everything. He lifted the veil of the law from our eyes and filled our eyes with his wonder and his glory and his salvation. And when we submit ourselves to the rule of Jesus and repent from our sins, as First Ephesians 1 says, we are adopted into the family of God, which will never end. And one day, we will live with our Abba Father and our brother and our family forever. This, 
this church thing that we do, this is only a small little taste of what's to come. The glory that is before us is unimaginable. Jesus also promised to never leave us and to empower us and to sanctify us and to speak through us. God moved his glory into us. Do you understand what that means? You are the holy of holies. You are the new ark of the covenant, the new throne of God. The God of power, the God of creation, the God who was the God who surrounded Mount Sinai in fire and thunder, the God who created everything, the God who was so overwhelming that Isaiah was melting before him. This God lives in you. And if you don't know him, he wants to live in you. He desires you more than anything so much that he died. Everything that the word Shekinah embodies now lives in you. That is awesome. We have been united with our God and our King, our Father and Brother, and there's nothing that can separate us from that now. And if I could have us go to the next slide. We're going to read on. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Just let that sink in. He lives in you. And now you reflect it. That all-consuming fire, it's in you. That thunderstorm that enveloped Mount Sinai, it's in you. The one who nature obeys and demons fear, he's in you. The ancient of days who's surrounded by a rainbow of indescribable beauty. He lives in you. The one who rules from Arxe to Eshatos, from beginning to last, is in you. The one who the angels cry out, holy, 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 lives in you. And countless other immeasurable acts of pure and glory and glory. Goodness night. An awesome glory. There we go. <laughs> and, and as we read at the start of our, our time together in Ephesians 6, we're his children. That's us, guys. Doesn't matter how old you are. You are the child of the king. He has given you every spiritual gift in the heavenly realms. And as a king places a crown upon his child, we now share our Father's glory. We, who have, been placed, who have placed our lives in the hands of Jesus, are forever like the image you see on screen. That's all of us right now. Be that from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. Made new in the glory of our God.
sons and daughters of the eternal king who will forever sit on his eternal lap on his eternal throne. But there's another aspect to this as well. And if you read in verse 18 again, so all of us who have had this veil removed can see and reflect, reflect the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. I'm going to focus on that word reflect. We're not fully reigning with our king yet, are we? No. We have a job to do. Our father desires to see the entirety of the world come to know him. From Dhaka, Senegal, to Kathmandu in Nepal, to Jakarta in Indonesia, and Grand Rapids. He wants his glory everywhere. And because of his great love and mercy, he's given us more time on earth to be able to see more and more people come. A lot of the time we think that it's a sad thing that God has not come yet. It's actually a great gift for the world. And we're, we need to live that out. We're now like the glow in the sky before the sun comes up for the sunrise. It is only a sliver, a taste of what's to come. But once that sun rises, there's no coming back. That sun will never set. And for over 2,000 years, God's children have spread throughout the globe to share the glory, that glory with the nations. And so I want to ask this question, guys. How are we doing with this? Does the world know who our God is and his glory? And I could tell you how we're doing. I really could. But I want to share a video with you. Um, this video is very hard for me to watch. Um, the last time I saw this video was seven years ago in Bible school. Um, and we had this gigantic wall of every single people group that has not yet come, uh, had missionaries or has ever heard. So I'd like to, you to watch this. Watch that. I think of the millions and millions of people who've never heard. And I want to give you a couple of stats that break my heart. On average, every single year, $700 million dollars is spent annually in the United States on Halloween costumes for pets. While on average, 1% of all money ever given towards missions is given to, mi to missions amongst unreached people groups. 1%. There are more than 100 different translations of the Bible in English while nearly 3,000 languages have never had one. A third of the entire population of the world without a Bible. There are 244 churches in the greater Grand Rapids area, yet there are still completely neglected neighborhoods and individuals. Church, we are living in an emergency. And are we blind to the sirens going on around us? They're dying. 
What are we doing? For some of us in this room today, death has been very real. There are people here who have lost very significant people in their lives. And we mourn with them. But let that mourning turn to motivation to reach those who are going to die without him. I'd like to end our time um, by walking through this new sentence on screen. So as we discussed before, uh, I can just read it out in Greek. Hey, doxa to Theo Ensu. Hey, doxa, the glory of God. That's what we translated first, and we discussed that that word doxa has a lot of weight behind it. And those two new words at the bottom, that first N, it's a preposition. It's telling us that this uh, glory of God, it's somewhere. But where is it? And Sue, Sue is a second person personal pronoun. And we'd, we'd say that as you. So God's glory is now in you. So let's, let's make this translation a little bit more weighty behind it. The fullness of the glory of the one true God resides within you, his children. Now, what are you going to do with that? Let's pray. Abba, Father, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, you have made us a window into heaven. You have allowed us to be crowned with glory. And you have given us the responsibility to reach a dying world. Father, we help us to remember what an emergency we live in right now. So many people without your word. And such glory in us. May we be like windows into heaven that shines with the glory of the one true king who can save them all not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. May you bless this church, and may we be a window into heaven. Amen.